Abolition today. All right, for the jury. I understand you have a verdict. Members of the jury, I will now read the verdicts as they will appear in the permanent records of the 4th Judicial District. State of Minnesota, County of Hennepin, District Court, 4th Judicial District. State of Minnesota Plaintiff versus Derek Michael Chauvin, Defendant. Verdict, Count 1. Court File Number 27, CR 20-12646. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to Count 1, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.44 p.m. Signed, Juror 4 Person, Juror Number 19. Same caption, verdict count two. We the jury in the above entitled matter as to count two, third degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.45 p.m. Signed by jury four person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count three. We the jury in the above entitled matter as to count three, second degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, Find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April 2021 at 1.45 p.m. Jury four person 019. Members of the jury, I'm now going to ask you individually if these are your true and correct verdicts. Please respond yes or no. Juror number two, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number nine, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 19, are these your true and correct verdicts? Juror number 27, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 44, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 52, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 55, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 79, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 85, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 89, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 91, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 92, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Are these your verdicts? So say you one, so say you all. Yes. Members of the jury, I find that uh, the verdicts as read reflect the will of the jury and will be filed accordingly. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Mendel Rivers to eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by the Schaefer Award Theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia. 
The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nubs. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner. The revolution will not be televised, brother. There will be no pictures of you and Willie Mae pushing that shopping cart down the block on the dead run or trying to slide that color TV into a stolen ambulance. NBC will not be able to predict the winner at 8.32 on reports from 29 districts. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of Whitney Young being run out of Harlem on a rail with a brand new process. There will be no slow motion or still life of Roy Wilkins strolling through Watts in a red, black, and green liberation jumpsuit that he had been saving for just the right occasion. Green Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, and Hooterville Junction will no longer be so goddamn relevant, and women will not care if Dick finally screwed Jane on Search for Tomorrow because black people will be in the street looking for a brighter day. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no highlights on the 11 o'clock news and no pictures of Harry Arm women liberationists and Jackie Onassis blowing her nose. The theme song will not be written by Jim Webb or Francis Scott Keyes, nor sung by Glenn Campbell, Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, or Engelbert Humperdinck. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. Abolition. Abolition. You just heard the verdict of convicted murderer Derek Shelvin as read by Hennepin County Judge Peter A. Cahill on April 20th, 2021, followed by my favorite version of The Revolution Will Not Be Televised by Gil Scott Heron. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archive podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org. Abolition Today is also available on all major podcast platforms and is simulcast on the Black Talk Radio Network. My name is Yusuf Hassan. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Max Parthas. Peace, Max. Peace, fam. Yo, the revolution might not be televised, but it's certainly going to be poeticized. I'm here at the uh, Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, as always. That's what I'm talking about, brother. So last week we showed you ain't no party like a slave catcher party because a slave catcher party don't stop. We examined the generational trauma. What causes it? How it does it manifest? Who inflicts it and why? We were joined by Rhode Island Poet Laureate nominee and play, uh, actually you think he said he's he won it or something. But anyway. He's the Providence uh, uh, Lo- Poet Laureate. The city of Providence. He's the Providence Poet, Poet Laureate and playwright. Yeah. Christopher the Incredible Johnson. So you definitely want to go back into the archives and check out that episode. In this episode, we'll discuss the roots and fruits of the problem. So anytime we hear anything that's dealing with racial turmoil and injustice, some of the things we hear are like uh, half the country says it's black people in BLM or that leftist liberals somehow control black people like poets 
or that the real problem is black racists who practice reverse racism against innocent whites and conveniently play race cards about problems that don't, doesn't really exist. <clears throat> racism, slavery, genocide, oppression, they say we should be more worried about black-on-black crime. You should learn to comply with authority and stop resisting. That we, that we, uh, they say we are a problem, and many of us believe it. We're going to show you exactly what the roots of the problem, where the roots of the problem lie. Uh, so bring pen and paper, because class is about to begin. Uh, of course, we got some uh, major poetic jewels to drop for National Poetry Month 2021. And as always, we bring the ancestors' words and wisdoms back to life in our Bridging the Gap segment. So, Max, kick it off with telling us how your week was, brother. Man, you know, this has been a pretty busy week. Tribal got her second shot. I'm supposed to get mine on Tuesday. But uh, a couple things happened in particular. I was a participant in the Village Talk series with Tina mm-hmm. Wyatt. Uh, that was yesterday. Uh, and, you know, when we first started out with that project, uh, she wanted to speak specifically about the village and the deterioration of it and how we bring that village uh, back that we had at one time. And by the time we got to the program, after speaking to me over time and becoming friends and, you know, getting closer, it was basically all about slavery abolition. So, you know, Tina Wire was like, yeah, we need to get this 13th Amendment thing out there. <laughs> and she did in a big way. So Tribal and I had the opportunity to tell a little bit of our backstory, which we don't do very often, and also to explain what's going on in the abolitionist movement. So that was really, really cool. Then also Friday, I went, uh, Tribal and I had a date, and we went down and some music and poetry with old friends, my brother the Dubber and Tamika State. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were doing music and poetry uh, down in Columbia, South Carolina at a historic Yeah, I was going to ask if that was Columbia or, or something. I think I met them the last time I was down there. Yeah, that was in Columbia. So that, was, that was pretty nice. Um, and then one more personal thing is tomorrow is my son Justice's birthday. Uh, nice. And it's special because this is his fourth birthday of being a free man. You know what I mean? Like he has turned right. everything around. And we built his life, and he's doing well now with a family, kids. That's, that's great. Great yeah. to hear. Well, that 75% recidivism rate is no joke, man. He had to beat that. We all have to beat that. And he had right. spent uh, 14 years in prison. So I'm happy for him. Happy birthday, Justice. Yes, so happy yeah, man, birthday. It's been stressful as hell because, you know, we went from the verdict, which people started celebrating as some kind of, you know, revolution, <laughs> the beginning of the, of, of the end for the system or something, and mm-hmm. no sooner than that was done, then there was a 16-year-old girl who was killed, and no sooner right. than we heard about that, and we heard about the guy in North Carolina who was killed, you know, right. and, and these bodies are dropping while the verdict is being read, you know, and then as soon as we went through those traumas, and there was other, uh, uh, Duante Wright's funeral came right after that. You know, right. so everybody's tuning into Duante Wright's funeral. It, it, it's just like one thing after the other. The trauma is so real. Last week's episode really touched on something that is raw for us right now. This constant exposure to murder, death, kill. You know, and it's not that we should hide our heads in the sand. It's you should stop freaking killing us. <laughs> you know, there's right. got to be a better way. When they killed that seven, 16-year-old girl, 15 or 16-year-old girl, 
I heard people who I admire and respect justify why she should be dead. I was like, what? Mm. <laughs> Dude, wow. it was heartbreaking to hear them talk like that about this child. They didn't know the story. All they knew was that she had something in her hand looked like a knife. And people agreed that it must have been some damn big-ass sword, apparently, that was going to kill everybody in sight if she wasn't stopped immediately. And there was right. a, a very it was an intricate backstory that goes farther than just the moments leading up to the fight, but her entire life uh, mm-hmm. is a backstory worth understanding. So, yeah, that's been what's been going on for us this week, man. Oh, and one other thing. Taiwan. Mm-hmm. In Taiwan, the headlines read, and I'll share it on Abolition Today, uh, Louisiana to end slavery. <laughs> in freaking Taiwan, the headlines are about Louisiana ending slavery in America. Wow. <laughs> it's all I can say. It's all I can say is wow. So, uh, Max, I want to play this clip. Can you hear me? I'm not yes. sure if I can be heard right now. Okay. Yes. The sound changed up in my headphones, and so I wasn't sure if I was even being heard at the moment. What? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to play a clip that we'll – I'm not even going to say anything about the clip. We'll, we'll discuss it on the other side of it. Just listen close. How's that sound? Just listen yes. close, and we'll discuss it and – you know, we have callers on the line. Maybe someone will press one, and they want to join the conversation because we have some very dynamic clips, as we always do. But tonight, there's a theme, and I think everyone's going to catch on really quick. So here's this clip. You're listening to Abolition Today with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan, and we'll see you right after this clip. Abolition. Abolition. Today. Abolition. And like I said, it's Boys LaGrange, Georgia. They'd be some law here, and it would be my law. Or either I'd die. And I'd, I'd probably wind up dying anyway, but, I mean, my thing is, and because they did away with the guns, blacks would take over, period. And you do away with the blacks. Like on Lockett Court. You go down through there, and, and you go all these other different places and you kill every one of them. Women, children, babies, you kill them all. Go to the hospital, kill them all. And, um, like I said, but you do away with the problem. And then you got a town that, no, you know, the National Guard wants to come in, you know, I, they'll wind up killing you, but at least you've done away with the problem. <laughs> Abolition. 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 How does it feel to be a problem? Exactly. So that clip was of Alan Weaver, owner of Alan Weaver Services, and there's actually an investigation going on in LaGrange County. Uh, I don't. I don't recall the state. Do you recall which state this is, Max, for LaGrange yeah, County? It's, it's LaGrange Troop County, Georgia. LaGrange Troop County, Georgia. And so, of course, he's claiming that that this was doctored and it was pieced together from several conversations that he was having. But the there's an ongoing... Music, that background music tells that a lie. You know, it's yeah. all seamless. <laughs> right. 
Right, unless someone was like a master at putting that stuff together. And so, what do you think of the video, Max? Well, or the audio? I, I found that, and I was like, we got to share that, especially for this week, because we're talking about the roots and the fruits of the problems. Well, there's the roots of the problem right there. There's a man who is, uh, he, this. first of all, this clip <clears throat> was achieved by one of his employees going to lunch with him. And the employee apparently was uh, upset about the way he was treating people, the racism, things like that. So he started to record him. And this is what the man said. He's a successful or was a successful business owner in LaGrange, Troop County, Georgia. And he sat down with his employee and explained to him how they should murder all black people and how to get Mm -hmm. into it. Had a plan and a strategy and everything. Now we don't know if this is a strategy that was handed to him from somebody else. Is he part of a larger organization where they are actually talking about it like this? Because we've heard police talk in this way before out in North Carolina. Remember where they was talking right. about this race war that everybody seems to know about, but nobody has a date or a time or a place or anything like that. So we don't know any of that. Um, it's horrible to hear this. This is the type of attitude and mentality that we're dealing with. People see you as a living problem that needs to be eliminated. And they want you either dead or in prison. And we'll talk openly to other people about how to kill you. But we're the problem, right? Right. We're the problem. I just feel to be a problem. And this same person would likely use all of those tropes that we put in the introduction race card that would say it's Black Lives Matter's fault and that George Soros has got his hand up all the black people's behind making them talk for him um, and you know that we are, are the worst thing in the world should be worried about black on black crime because we killing each other matter of fact we killing white people more than we killing everybody else too that's we killing everything matter of fact we yeah. are Mars killing robots that's how bad we are right we everywhere killing something right and they tell us to comply and stop resisting. <laughs> right. And and see, you know, one of the thing that stood out for me most, that he was okay, that he, he knows he's going to die while he's on this killing spree. Yeah. He and he was okay he was with that. Mission. He, he wasn't sure, though. And that was also intriguing. He wasn't sure if the National Guard would kill you. Because, you know, they're pretty racist, too. There's nothing about being a soldier that says you can't be a soldier and a racist, and we all know it. Right. So he could be a veteran himself, speaking from experience. Like maybe I had some friends over there that felt the same way I do. If I meet up with a few of them, I won't get killed. <laughs> you know? But that's what we're dealing with today um, that type of attitude. And it's not something new. It goes way, way back. As a matter of fact, a couple of clips that I want to share today uh, Mm -hmm. shows some of that. Uh, uh, There's a woman by the name of Marsha Ballard, and she wrote a book called Enslavement as Punishment. And I was looking at her video uh, talking about the book itself and some of the ideas that she had. And it dawned on me, and I'm, I'm pretty certain of this, that we inspired the book. And I don't mean we as in you and me, Yusuf, but as in the abolitionist movement that's happening right now, which we're a part of and right in the mm-hmm. middle. So she started talking about how states were uh, ending slavery, Colorado and Utah, 
and others were getting their legislation to do it. She wasn't sure who was organizing all of it. She thought it was kind of independently occurring. Um, mm-hmm. And it made her do her own research. And then she wrote the book on, you know, what we're talking about, enslavement as punishment. And there's a couple of parts that she spoke on. I learned something from, I, you know, I I don't think I know it all, but it's not often that I've learned something brand new. And she showed right. me a couple of brand new things, you know. So I would like to share uh, those key elements that show this attitude, this problem, where the real problem is how far back it goes. You're listening to Abolition Today with Yusuf Hassan and Max Parthas. If you want to call in and join the conversation, the number is 515-605-9814. 515-605-9814. If you get on the line, remember to press 1 so that we know you have a question or comment. All right, so let's listen to the first clip of Marsha Ballard. This is the moment in time where she describes as the tipping point. And listen closely. Abolition. Abolition. So what I want to take uh, time uh, and spend a little bit of time is just a brief historical perspective on the methodology that allowed um, slavery to move into the western frontiers. And uh, the page um, that covers that, it starts on page 11. Uh, so I'm just going to read <clears throat> the brief uh, intro to that. Uh, between 1812 and 1848, the, the U.S., the United States, has experienced significant territorial expansion. States formed out of the Western Territory seeking admission into the Union were admitted in pairs. One free, one slave state. And I was like, that's interesting. And I was like, why, why are they doing this pairing? And what I found was, it was the most politically expedient way to get enough Southern and Northern bipartisan votes in the Senate to admit new states and preserve the Union. Maintaining a slave state, free state admission policy worked so well that by 1850, there was an equal balance of free states, 15, and slave states. 15. The balance of power tipped the more free states were admitted to the Union than slave states. By the eve of the United States Civil War uh, in mid-1861, uh, uh, with the addition of California, Minnesota, Oregon, Kansas, and Kansas, the number of free states had grown to 19, while the number of slave states remained at 15. Given the disproportionate free-slash-slave states pairing, and add to that Abraham Lincoln's election to the presidency on the platform, party platform, that slavery would not be extended to any new territories or states, in addition to other social and political upheavals, it led uh, to southern, uh, South Carolina, followed by six of the seven states succeeding from the Union, that's marking the start of the Civil War. Abolition. 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 So you just heard Marsha Ballard speaking on Tipping the Scales, which is a portion of her book entitled Enslavement as Punishment. 
That was really powerful there, Max. Yeah, I didn't know that the states were admitted in pairs, one free and one slave. Right. And they did that in order to maintain the balance in the Senate and to keep the union together. And then she described that tipping point. It set off a light in my head because I'm always looking for the moments when history repeats, when the same things are happening over and over again. Because, you know, what did uh, Mark Twain say? It may not repeat. It may it may not repeat, but it sure does rhyme, right? <laughs> so I'm always looking at for, for those moments so I can know if this is the initial condition where we can change something. And she pointed out how the tipping point was these additional states coming on to the point where now you had more free states than you had slave states. And that was the pressure. And it put in mind the map that we have of the Abolished Navy National Network and all the different states that are now free states and moving right. towards free states. What happens when we get to that tipping point there as well? Will we also be in a position where we have a presidential candidate who is looking to end slavery and abolitionists uh, potentially? And what will be the response of the opposition at that point? The last time it was a civil war. It happened right here near where I'm at right now. Uh, right. I'm hoping that in it doesn't fact, repeat again. Yeah, Fort Sumter was a huge battle in the war. Right. The first shots fired right from here. Um, right. So, yeah, that that's what it reminds me of, you know, the Abolish Navy National Network and the strategy that we're using and the conversations that are arising because of this. We've seen the opposition really start to rear their head up now. In California, it's the police unions and the prison industry because prison industries are huge in California. That's a lot of money. And they're very concerned about what effects ending involuntary servitude would have on their state's prison labor force. Um, the same thing in Tennessee, which is the home of the KKK. We saw the very first no votes about ending slavery in this process right. that we've been doing. And that came from uh, – they didn't really give good explanations either. You could tell they were doing it because they really wanted slavery to be legal. And right. that is the home base of CCA, which is the largest for-profit private prison in America. So, yeah, it, it reminds me of these. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and, and so, you know, I'm really big on uh, legal issues behind these, you know, Supreme Court rulings. And there's a case entitled Texas versus White that came in 1869, and there's something really unique about it because as these states were attempting to secede from the Union, the Supreme Court ruled that unilateral secession was unconstitutional, but that revolutional consent of the states could lead to a successful succession. So it was sort of like the court saying, you all can't do it at one time, but you can strategically put this together and you'll be within your legal right of doing so. And I just thought that that was uh, unique, hearing the Supreme Court rule that and, as, and instructing them of how to do it to where they'd have their legal rights protected of seceding from the union. I was listening to another clip from Mississippi and Slavery and Secession, I think it's titled, and they were talking about mm -hmm. Abraham Lincoln. So she, as Marsha Ballard described, the tipping point happened when there were more free 
slave states than slave states. And then right. the Republican Party got control. But the Southerners were very worried about his alleged abolitionist stance, even though he kept telling them, I'm a white supremacist. He kept telling them, you have no fear of me ending slavery in your uh, in the South. His whole thing right. was he, he was not going to stand against slavery where it already had been established. He wanted to create more free states. Uh, so they gave him more credit than he deserved about being an abolitionist because he really wasn't. He was a white sure supremacist who tried to maintain slavery. Uh, so it reminded me of, of that as well, that we could be at that point where we have a candidate and that comes in and he may not even be an abolitionist. He might just smell like an abolitionist and that'll send the prison industries into an uproar. You know what I mean? Cause he just smell right. like an abolitionist. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, just the idea that they were going to end slavery was enough to create this uh, moment where a civil war began. All right. Well, there was a pandemonium. Do you have any more? You want to comment on that particular clip? No, no, no. I want us to go ahead and get into the other portion from her. All right. This one was profound. Uh, Again, something I didn't know. Uh, After her studies, she discovered that Charles Sumner stood up against the 13th Amendment Exception Clause, uh, and specifically about the Exception Clause. And he gave us, provided also a prophecy of what would happen if this was not nipped in the bud right now. So even then, when it, the ink wasn't even on the paper, they already knew. There was people who already knew what they were trying to achieve uh, in this compromise with the South that would allow them to switch from chattel slavery to prison slavery. So uh, she breaks down this prophecy, and we'll hear it. So we're going to go ahead and play that. Uh, have your pens and papers out. You know, like I said, class is in. We're going to show you what the problem is. <laughs> The Roots and the Fruits. We'll be right back. Abolition. Abolition. I'm going to read what I call the Sumner Prophecy, which I found amazing. Sumner expressed bitter disappointment over the exception clause in the 13th Amendment. He later prophesied in his book, the condition of the freemen will be deplorable. Exposed to everyday brutality, he will not be heard as a witness against his oppressor. Compelled to pay taxes, he will be excluded from all representation in the government. Without uh, federal, political, and civil enfranchisement enforcement, the security of the emancipation is illusionary. It's a jack-o'-lantern which the poor slave will pursue in vain. Even if slavery ceases to exist, it will give it a place to a condition hardly less falling. There will be serfdom, apprenticeship, peonage, or some other device of slavery. According to the poet, there are different circles of hell, each with its own terrible torment. And the unhappy African will only escape from one of these to another. And all this will be beyond correction or remedy if it is not the onset guarded against in organic law. The prophecy that he made was to me jarring because it showed in detail 
what was going to happen? That yes, we were going to, you know, abolish slavery, but because we put it right back in uh, as a, a punishment for a crime, any any uh, law, especially state law, that considered the laws that existed before the end of slavery, which were the Black Code, could be brought back in and reapplied so that uh, you could get arrested as a Black person for just about anything. What I would like to do right now is just to read a, a piece uh, in doing this research that I found about <clears throat> about what happened to Charles Sumner that I, 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 I find uh, very shocking and um, very much uh, it, 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 it happened uh, back in 1856 but considering what happened at the state capitol recently uh, this could be like a precursor to, to that event this was a speech that he had made that talked about should Kansas be admitted to the Union as a slave state or a free state. And it was on May uh, 19, 1856. And it was called Crimes Against Kansas. Sumner, in this long speech, identified two Democratic senators as the principal culprits in this crime, Stephen Douglas of Illinois and Andrew Butler of South Carolina. He characterized Douglas to his face as a noisome, squat, and nameless animal, and charged Butler with taking a mistress, who, though ugly to others, is always lovely to him. Though polluted in the sight of the world, is chased in his sight. I mean, added Sumner, a harlot slavery. On May 22nd, so this is just a few days after he gave the speech, Representative Preston Brooks from South Carolina entered the chamber and beat unsuspecting someone unconscious with the metal tip cane that he carried. So, just so you know, there have been violence. There has been violence in these chambers before. Abolition. 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 And that was Marsha Ballard. That was the second part entitled Charles Sumner Prophecy from her book, Enslavement as Punishment. So, Max, that was... Yeah. Uh, like I said, taught me something I didn't know. Yeah, picturesque. And, right. And she said it was a precursor for what we just saw. Like, that violence has already been there. And right at the heart of it is... Uh, two states in particular. One, the home state of Abraham Lincoln, and of course his buddy Stephen Douglas is who he wrote all of these letters to about how you don't need to worry about <clears throat> slavery while I'm around, bro, because I got your back. And right. then, of course, South Carolina with uh, Preston Brooks literally coming and beating another senator on the freaking floor. It's, it's, I mean, it's crazy, man. It's nuts. But this is yeah. the roots we're talking about. 
this isn't something that just started yesterday. This goes all the way back to the 1850s and 60s. Right. It's the same people with the same mindset trying to see, achieve the same exact goals, slavery and human trafficking, and using now, instead of chattel slavery, using prisons as a uh, development program. In order, an economic development program in order to generate funds, resources, uh, monies, and to control certain populations based on race, class, and zip code. I mean, it's very simple, but it's very yeah. complex at the same time. It's a part of everything that we are in this uh, country. Every aspect of and society is affected by this. Yeah, and it shows intentions. They can never say, as Hillary Clinton said in that audio we played that time, oh, it was the unintended consequences. No, it's intended because we have almost 160 years of evidence to present showing that it was intended because it was unintentional. Then the first time that it was mentioned to you, you know, as far back as 1871 in the civil rights cases, they could have said, okay, we didn't intend for this to happen. Let's fix it. No. They kept going. They created the convict leasing. This, as she was talking about the black codes. You know, yeah, smallest little things people will get arrested for. Yeah, yeah, that was out there, man. If we had trials today, that would be invisible mm. evidence, because that is uh, what exactly happened and what words were said at the time that the Thirteenth Amendment was being argued. They knew what was going on. Not only did they knew, but they had Charles Sumner there to tell all of them, this is what you're trying to achieve here. You're recreating slavery all over again. And if we Mm -hmm. don't stop it now, it's not going to be able to be stopped. We won't be able to stop. That was his prophecy, that we'd be in 2021 going, is it slavery? I don't know. It might not be slavery. Maybe it's just (laughs) mass incarceration. (laughs) You know? Where not only can we not stop it, or we thought we couldn't stop it, but we can't even see it. <laughs> you know, they done right. blinded us to it. Because it's so normal. It's the norm. And it's only until it's brought into the forefront and people are saying, this is slavery. And again, we have this body of evidence to prove it. So now it's a matter of, are you for or against slavery? That line in the sand. It's really simple, and that's why going back to those no votes in Tennessee, the reasons they used for voting no just made no sense whatsoever. They couldn't even come up with a logical fallacy to fit. (laughs) They came up with just outright and utter nonsenses explaining why they were going to vote no, saying something like, well, uh, I'm not an attorney and my constituents aren't attorneys. So I don't understand this, and I can't explain it to them, so I'm going to vote no. And the other one was talking about how the Constitution of Tennessee is sacred, and we don't want to go be putting a whole bunch of stuff in there for no reason, you know, because slavery is over. We don't have slavery. (laughs) (laughs) Like, dude, did you not read the damn Constitution? (laughs) Evidently not. Yeah, and it's, it's sacred. They ain't trying to put nothing in. They're trying to take something out. They're trying to take right. out, except for prisoners duly convicted out of your state constitution so that you, home of the KKK, can't exploit that any further 
with your for-profit private prison that is headquartered right there in your state. And right. uh, it's pretty awesome, man. And, you know, out in Alabama, they're building these new billion-dollar prisons. And mm-hmm. some students and organizers got together that uh, stopping Barclays Bank from doing any business with them. So, you know, these Alabama prisons are having problems getting financed. <laughs> right. They can't find the $2 billion they were looking for. <laughs> Where's the $2 billion? It's uh, it's good to see that prisons, for-profit prisons are dying away. We can see their death throes now. We know they're trying to diversify and find other ways to continue to exist, like the GEO group here in the United States, doing things like halfway houses now, uh, mental health uh, assistance, uh, the bracelets that you put on for home arrest, mm-hmm. all kinds of different right. things. So, Because they know that they're they're out of time that people are not going to tolerate a prison for profit anymore. Uh, just wait till the people realize that the public and the state and the federal and county prisons and jails are also for profit, <laughs> you know? Exactly. And and likewise, with this, the story you just mentioned about the Barclays, uh, that, that deal go, uh, breaking down for them to get the bond, uh, Governor Kay Ivey of Alabama is disappointed as underwriters pull out of an Alabama prison deal. So they were actually trying to get something going down there as well. Uh, I can't recall the amount that they were trying to do, but it was uh, they were trying to enter into a 30-year deal, prison company, and we know how that goes with the uh, private prison companies where they have these 20 to 30-year contracts where there is the a stipulation within the contract that the state has to have the prisons at a particular max capacity, whether it's 80%, 90%, or 100%. And so that forces the states to start adopting new laws to start locking more people up. You know, and they put pressure on the local judges to where the judges, when people come in there with fines, unpaid fines, or the smallest little things. They want to lock everyone up because they have to meet those quotas or they'll suffer civil penalties from these private prison companies. So, again, going back to Tennessee, that's part of the reason why uh, they were doing this no vote, these four uh, state senators, because they know the backlash that these or the power that these private prisons have over them. Because they know if they're not making these quotas, then the state is going to uh, have to do budgetary cuts to start paying off these civil penalties for not having prisons at the particular capacity that's within their contract. Yes. Uh, man. I've shared the links that we've been talking about to the best of my ability on our Facebook mm-hmm. page. So if you're listening and you want to check out those links, you can find them there. What I am not able to get up in time, I will get up after the program. Uh, we got a lot we're juggling tonight. And uh, hopefully we'll get our sister Jeanette Smith back one day uh, soon when her wrists are healed. Remember, she broke most of her wrists. She's still right. recovering. Um, and she, would, she could share the stuff as we speak of that. In any case, uh, Marsha Ballard, uh, I'm looking forward to getting her here on Abolition Today with you and I. Absolutely. And having a discussion. Absolutely. I can't wait to hear her voice when she realizes, oh, you're the guys. <laughs> you know the people? Yeah. 
Yeah, it was that inspired your book <laughs> right here. So come on out of here and let's, you know, uh, share notes because apparently she knows uh, things I don't. And hopefully it's vice versa with us that we can show her a couple things and maybe advance it. Like she had some ideas that was great. One, she said, for instance, in the same way that you have to be read your Miranda rights when you're arrested, you should mm-hmm. also be informed that if you are convicted of a crime, you are subject to slavery. That that's right. part of the initial arrest. So Miranda rights, and also because of the 13th Amendment, if you found convicted for any charges, you will be subject to slavery. So that people know right off the bat. And I, I was like, right. wow, that's genius. <laughs> you know, that's really yeah. a way of getting it out there. You know, the first time a cop would would say that to somebody, that's going to be it. <laughs> Right. That changes the entire uh, process. And speaking of the process, so we know prosecutors play a big role in this process. In fact, outside, you know, I always talk about the defense attorney being the convincer. Mm-hmm. Well, the prosecutor is the one who basically has the real authority in the courtroom because he, he controls who gets charged, who gets charged for what. And who doesn't get charged, as we saw in the case of the officers in the in the murder of Breonna Taylor, you know David Cameron decided he wasn't even going to put any type of murder charges in his uh his uh what he presented to the grand jury, and so therefore had it not been for those grand or those grand jurors coming out and saying, well we didn't find any charges against them because he didn't present any charges forced to find against them. So the prosecutors play a big role. And Max, how many prosecutors, because we know many cases get overturned due to, due to prosecutorial misconduct, uh, yes, hiding no, evidence, all of this stuff. Right. So <laughs> how many prosecutors have been convicted of misconduct? Uh, hold on. Let me see if I got enough fingers and toes. Uh, one. One, exactly one, and that was just a couple right. of years ago. First time ever. Exactly. No problem. So seven years ago, been. right, seven years ago, Ken Anderson was booked into the jail in Williamson County, the same county where he once served as district attorney, to begin a 10-day sentence, 10 day sentence for misconduct that led to the wrongful conviction of Michael Morton. Today he remains the only prosecutor, past or present, who has ever spent time in jail for misconduct that led to a wrongful conviction, even though 729 people exonerated since 1989 are wrongfully convicted in cases involving prosecutorial misconduct. Mr. Anderson is also one of just a few prosecutors to have had their license to practice law revoked as a result of their role in the wrongful conviction. You know, that's amazing. That 800, almost 800 you were talking about is just those that included prosecutorial misconduct. Doesn't include everything, just the ones that had prosecutorial misconduct. Yeah, that's not talking about the police misconduct or the judicial misconduct or the jury nullification and, you know, all of the things that go on. There's so many many layers to this that they have all these uh, ways to tip the scales, as Marsha Ballett talked about. Let's talk about the roots and fruits again. When you're looking at prosecutorial pool, exactly how much of that prosecutorial pool are white men? Uh, 
I would say 90, 95%. Well, the stats are 95% of all prosecutors are white. 83% are white men. So now look at what you're dealing with, a 95% white prosecutorial pool, and what are they doing all day long? Issuing out uh, plea bargains, Sixth Amendment mm-hmm. violations that completely wipe out your right to a fair and speedy trial, and we know you certainly don't get any kind of uh, <clears throat> any kind of representation, legal representation, which is also allowed to you by the Sixth Amendment. So it's, it becomes now an assembly line of flesh and bone as you just shoving people through the system, through plea bargains, where you're threatening them with life imprisonment or whatever it may be if they don't agree that they are guilty of things they didn't do. A friend of mine who is a Quaker, uh, Sister Renee, her daughter just was put into that position where they wanted, I think her daughter was put in that position where they wanted her to plead guilty uh, to something Mm -hmm. that she didn't do through the plea bargain system. It happens all day, every day, and it's a constitutional violation to the point where you could say, without a doubt, that this is a constitutional crisis. But when we address this issue to prosecutors across the country, their answer uniformly is, if we sent every case to trial, it would break the system. Everybody listening in my voice right now that is down with breaking the system, raise your hands. (laughs) Right, exactly. Break the damn system. Nobody gave you the permission to violate our rights. How is it your convenience is more important than my freedom? Yeah, because when we start talking about those Sixth Amendment violations, you have the one side where you have the prosecutor uh, delaying handing over exculpatory evidence, you know, evidence that will uh, clear a person of a charge. So they end up misfiling it, and it ends up lost in a warehouse somewhere. And then on the other side, you have the defense attorney, who is some very low-paid uh, uh, public defender or public pretender, as I call them, and he's overwhelmed. We've covered it on past episodes of how many cases that they have, and it's just impossible for them to even put forth any adequate defense for them. So he takes on the role as the convincer. He goes and he tells the person – uh, the prosecutor is offering you such and such. Uh, this is the best deal for you. The evidence against you is overwhelming, and that's his mantra the entire time. And you have the accused on the other side of the table, you know, with this pushback. They're saying, look, I can't do that kind of time. Or if, the, if, if it's someone who's declaring themselves innocent, you know, he's going to say, well, I want to go to trial with it, and he's going to constantly keep telling them, no, the jury is going to think this, the jury this, the jury that, the jury that, just sitting there to convince him. So they work hand-in-hand hand on both sides, and the judge knows that this goes on because uh, judges, most judges are former prosecutors. Every now and then a former defense attorney makes it to uh, the bench, but most are former prosecutors, so they know how the game is played, Max. Hey, I want to give a shout-out to my man, Frederick Click. I think he's going to call in. If you do call in, uh, make sure you press the number one on your keypad so that we know it's you and we can bring you in because we have a number of callers who just listen through their phone. But if you press one, we know that you have a question or comment. The number to call in if you want to join the conversation is 515-605-9814. And press one when you get here. 
So, yeah, man, it's it, it it's a a song and dance basically. But while that song and dance is ha- happening, our constitutional rights are being violated, and the results of those violations are what they call mass incarceration. Uh, we don't get out of these prisons, and then especially in cases where you have like the uh, habitual offender laws that they have like in Alabama, the three strike mm-hmm. laws as they're commonly known. It doesn't matter what the third thing you've done is you're just gone for life, you know, for life. You could steal a car radio. You could be accused of something that didn't happen and end up in prison for life. And then there's the eighth amendment violations also, which is a root cause of these issues. The sixth amendment gets you in the prison the Eighth Amendment violations allow them to brutalize you while you're in there, to violate your rights as a human and as a citizen, to treat you in ways where if it was Michael Vick, he'd be in prison, right? Because <laughs> right. dogs get better treatment than many of the people in places like oh, Alabama, he Mississippi, the death penalty and Angola. If... Right. Yeah. He, he would have gotten, gotten the death, death penalty if uh, Alan Weaver would have had his way. So once you're in there, the Eighth Amendment kicks in, and they start violating that. Uh, and even mm-hmm. to the extreme ends of the Eighth Amendment, which by, it says it protects you not only from excessive fines and fees, but also uh, from cruel and unusual punishment. And what's the coolest, most unusual punishment of all? Death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Death. Kill you Absolutely. dead. We know, based on the statistics so far, that one in every 25 people who were killed on death row were innocent. One in every 25. How many is enough to stop it for? You know, if it was your mama or your brother or your son or your daughter, would that be enough to stop it for? Are we just going to keep killing people every day, even though at least every 25th person is innocent? So these are constitutional know, violations. Absolutely. And we know that the government doesn't have the moral authority to determine who gets to live and who gets to die. Right. It doesn't have that. History shows it's not able to make that decision. Uh, unbiasedly. Right. We spoke about it last week where we were saying, like in Florida, until recently, again, just one time, there had never been a white person, a white man who was sentenced to death to killing a black man in Florida. As if no white people ever killed any black people in Florida. You know? Right. But it was just the way they got this system set up. They, yes, they don't get the death penalty. They don't get the death penalty. Uh, so Max, you made you made mention about these life sentences, and uh, it calls to mind a Supreme Court uh, ruling that came down uh, during the week. Uh, Supreme Court rejects challenge to life sentences for juveniles, and the Supreme Court ruled that juveniles can be sentenced to life in prison without parole, without a separate ruling uh, to show that they cannot be rehabilitated. You know, so it's. They don't even get the opportunity, you know, because, okay, getting life in, life life without parole, okay, you're talking murder and maybe some of, some of the other serious violent felonies out there. But we're talking about someone's 13 years old, 14 years old, and they're making that determination right there and then that, okay, this 13-year-old, when he becomes 30, He's not someone that can be rehabilitated. They're making that determination when he's 13. And so they're stuck in prison for the rest of their life. So the challenge came to the court where the person was saying, well, look, 
all we want to do is be able to have a parole hearing. That's what he was looking for, just to have the possibility of parole. They're not even looking, you know, to have certainty of release, but at least let us show uh, some performance over the course of a number of years and be able to go to the parole board and qualify for being released. And the court shot that down. And that's the purpose of the National Freedom Movement, to get that type of bill in place that allows a set series of steps you could take to achieve parole. Because life without parole is basically a slow death sentence. That's what it is. Absolutely. A sentence to not just a slow death, but death in hell. Uh, Slow death in hell. So you have to endure this every single day until you die with no hope. And uh, in nearly every other country on earth, nothing like that exists. Nobody is sent away for the rest of their entire days. You know, people change, and you got to give them a chance to find right. out if that from is from being a child. Case. But with our yeah, from government, being, yeah, from being a child, they're being sent away for life forever. For them, it's just another cell that stays filled for that many years, and that's a little less they have to worry about filling. And it's just horrible the way to consider it. Hey, before we uh, go any further, I got a couple messages that came in. I want to read okay. one to you. Uh, Brother Laramie Griffin out in Louisiana, he didn't know. Okay. And he's one of the organizers out there with uh, the incarcerated in Louisiana. He didn't know that they had the headlines in Taiwan. He was like, yo, I'm going to raise my foot up too. So I'm guessing he's got his fist up and he's raising the foot up too because they got the headlines about Louisiana in Taiwan. That is pretty awesome, brother, indeed. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That really is. Mm-hmm. So, and then I want to tell, do a lead up to the music break that we're going to have. Um, mm-hmm. You know, most of the people who are being murdered by police are not involved in violent felonies when it occurs. As a matter of fact, in uh, only 34% of these murders of unarmed black people by police are a violent felon. Nine percent of no illegal activity whatsoever. You know, nothing <laughs> at all. Right. Seven uh, percent are misdemeanors. And then twenty four percent are traffic stops. So your tail lights, all the little things. Uh mm-hmm. what's air freshener that they used recently? Your air right. freshener, uh whatever it may be, can lead to your death. Twenty five percent of those are, are that. Uh, then there's one percent that's self-initiated, and I don't even know what the hell that means. Is that what is, what is that by mean? cop? Yeah, what is that self-initiated one percent? Then five percent says criminal activity not specified, which I would rank under no illegal activity. You will, you don't right. know if there's a crime. And then the remaining twenty percent is nonviolent felonies. Uh, you know things like warrants and stuff like that. Oh, you got a warrant? Mm-hmm. We're gonna hunt you down, like. Walter Scott uh, would be an example of that. Right. So the majority of the murders that are happening are for nonviolent or if, no criminal activity at all. Yeah. If, if my math is correct, it sounds like 66%. Basically, yeah. 34% is violent felony. Everything else is nonviolent or no felony at all or no crime at all. From no right. crime at all to a nonviolent felony. Whatever that may be, nonviolent felony. Car theft, I guess, would be a nonviolent felony. Yeah, uh, so, burglary. But the idea that 25% is just traffic stuff. 
stops alone. And to know that these states depend so heavily on speeding and traffic and uh, violation, parking violation, tickets and fines and fees, it means that every stop is a potential death right there because of the interaction now with the citizen by the police. Right. And they're increasing these interactions, which is going to result in what? Increasing the deaths. And why are they dying? Because you got too goddamn many of them who sound like that man in the clip we played earlier with plans to kill right. everybody. You know, they might right. not be screaming it out loud in the streets in their uniform. Uh, they might not be wearing their insignias on their shoulder, but they certainly believe these things. And we've heard these police speak on this over and over again. So there's a film that came out recently, and a couple of friends of mine have participated in it. It's by Brave New Films, and it's called Racially Charged, America's Misdemeanor Problem. And I would suggest that everybody go ahead and take a look at that. We'll try to provide the link on our Facebook page for you to see. We're going to play that, and then right after that, because it's Poetry Month, we're going to keep it going with the poetry, we're going to play Prison Got Bars by Ephraim Nehemiah. Nehemiah. All right, Ephraim Nehemiah. So make sure you stay tuned. We got a whole lot for you tonight. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. The justice system after emancipation was weaponized against black people. It perpetuated slavery by making the mechanisms of enslavement pretty much the same. Family separation, backbreaking labor, people having no rights. You could be sold on the steps of the courthouse that you were convicted in and given to the highest bidder. A whole separate criminal code that applied to African Americans was established. Many misdemeanor offenses are best understood as mechanisms of social control. They're not designed to catch dangerous or guilty people, but rather they are tools. We give them to police as additional ways of exercising their authority. Some of these laws were overtly race-based. And with others then and now, the understanding was that the laws would look race neutral, but they would be applied and enforced almost exclusively against black people. For these governments to sell prisoners into slavery, you first have to arrest lots of people. There's a big problem with that though. There's just not enough crime for this system to work and for it to be profitable. The state governments of the South had to invent new crimes. Southern legislatures, which are essentially run by Confederates at that time, are trying to reinscribe a form of slavery through a system of laws called Black Codes. A whole category of new statutes passed in almost every Southern state that attached these enormous penalties to what were in reality very minor thefts. Those were laws and many others like it that were only ever enforced against African Americans. And so it became a way to have a basis for arresting huge numbers of black people. First off, I need to introduce myself. My daddy's name was capitalism. In a past life, I was a plantation. They used to call me slavery. Now they call me prison, AKA the big house, AKA the slammer. But I'm always down for a battle. But they still could pe- put me up against this same tired competition. Like I don't kill niggas every time. 
Like I don't give life sentences that reek of death. Spit bars that'll lock a nigga down. But I still got diss tracks I'm putting out. One of them's called Pipeline. I sample the test scores of third graders to produce the music. Black boy in prison get into a rap battle. Prison got too many bars. Yeah, boy, do that gun talk. I love when you rap like that. Think it's a coincidence a gun charge called a possession? I own every nigga that's strapped. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. How easy it is to lock up a black body. How if the animals that are in cages are named criminals, they'll say it's a prison instead of a zoo. I mean, I got a whole congregation of sinners. Shoot, might as well call me Pastor Hell. Matter of fact, I'm past hell. I'm heaven. Both of us take away the black faces America don't want to see no more. Besides, when's the last time you've seen the angel walk out of heaven's gates when they already trapped there? Nigga, I'm a savior. Got degenerates, bad immigrants. Everyone that walks into me is a second-class citizen because prison got bars like chocolate. Bodies, they stay lined up till I break them apart because broken families taste better. Prison got bars like monkeys hanging from cells because suicide more finger licking when the barrier's darkened. What's that y'all say? Black folks say killing themselves anyway. So even when the guards help, it's just assisted suicide. Prison got bars, I don't sell bricks, I sell blocks. Got whole neighborhoods inside of me, but my cellmates, they multiply while they coming in. And I got signed by a label named the DEA. Told them feed me black bodies, I'ma keep them paid. Told me to ask this question for all you optimistic people out there. If you take everybody that's not black outside of prison, am I half empty or half full? Nigga, you think you hard? No, you like pedaling downhill, messing with me. You ain't going nowhere like you pedaling in spots and you still can't handle bars. I even got my target at the people in the barbershop. Every nigga in a chair is in my crosshair. I'm hungry, famished, savage, barbaric. You push weight, barbell, bell rings. I'm there, young niggas used to living by the street code. I turned those same niggas into products like barcodes because prison loves karma. Everything I spit out has a way of coming back inside of me. I mean, what can I say? Prison gets such a hold on you. My hooks are catchy now. What is history like that? Would I look like battling a rapper? Nah, I'll get into it with the ocean. See who can get more black carcasses. I mean, that whole slave ship thing got their numbers high, but the way I sell, the way I sell, the way I sell, ain't no water ever gonna be on top of me. Ain't no rapper ever gonna be able to top of me because prison got too many bars. And it ain't no major key for that. Abolition. That was Brave New Films, Racially Charged, the documentary on America's misdemeanor problem. And that was followed by Ephraim Nehemiah's Prison Got Bars. Man and Max, that was heavy. Yeah, it's a one-two punch for your ass right there for sure. Um, You know, where they broke down the history of how it happens, going back to the roots uh, of where this come from. And then Brother Ephraim coming in with the fruit. you know, what right. is it now? Here is the fruits of it. This prison got bars. And the metaphors that he used was astounding. Really, the way he expressed prison was, uh, I was happy to hear that because you're really looking at it in the way that it should be looked at. He said, uh, he was comparing it with like the ocean. He was like, well, I want to battle rappers. I need to battle the ocean. 
to see how many black bodies we could get the most, who could get the most black bodies. Like that's how big it's become. When we start talking about right. the largest employer on uh, two continents is prisons, you know, it's that big. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a behemoth. And behemoth. Yeah, and when you start talking about the roots, as we talk about all the time since day one of this program, and especially uh, this season where our theme is badges and incidents of slavery, and all we're doing is over and over and over again showing them. And this video or the uh, documentary captures that when they talk about uh, what it was and how it changed from generation to generation. And then, yeah, like you said, it was like the perfect culmination. Here is the fruit of the seed that you planted way back then. Right. And dude came in like he was Kool-Aid busting through the door. First off, let me introduce myself. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like he cut dude off in the middle of his statement. Like, you know, we got to, this ended up, and incarcerating hundreds and thousands of black people. First off, let me introduce you. That was him. He's the one. That, that's who he's he talking about. So that was awesome. So, what Max, uh, in, the, in our talks about, you know, cops killing blacks with impunity, the question came up, well, when will we see this system change? And I'd like to thank, you know, a tremendous friend of mine into the show, Lulu Lux, for this this next clip that I want to play. It's of uh, Chris Cuomo from his show on CNN. I'll let him tell the story, okay? I won't even say the title of it. The title, you know, will give away what he's about to say. So this is Chris Cuomo on CNN. And you're listening to Abolition Today with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. We'll be right back. How many more die of the pandemic, dying from police shootings, George Floyd, Dante Wright? I wonder if you'll remember their names six months from today, because they'll be replaced by so many others. You're here, people. What are you going to do when you see these shootings? You know what you're going to do. That George Floyd. Did you hear about him? That Dante Wright. Did you hear about him? That 13-year-old Adam, you know he was a gangbanger. Why do that? Because you want to make the problem them. Takes the onus off the idea that you're wrong about policing not needing to change. Forget that police are trained to deal with non-compliance with force that is not lethal. Hey, comply or die. And you know what the answer is? You really do. You don't like it. I don't like it. It scares me. Shootings, gun laws, access to weapons. Oh, you, I know when they'll change. Your kids start getting killed. White people's kids start getting killed. Smoking that doobie that's actually legal probably in your state now, but they don't know what it was. And then the kid runs and the pop, 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 pop. Cop was justified. Why'd you run? Oh, he had a baseball game tonight. Huh, the white kid, oh, big family, that house over there? Those start piling up? What is going on with these police? Oh, what, maybe we shouldn't even have police. That kind of mania, that kind of madness, 
That'll be you. That'll be the majority. Because it's your people. See? Now, black people start getting all guns, forming militias, protect themselves. Can't trust the deep state. Woo-hoo! You'll see a wave of change in access and accountability. We saw it in the 60s. That's when it changes. Because that's when it's you. So my job is to show you in them. Because they're before the grace. And the grace is forgiveness that none of us deserve for the blessings that we're wasting in this country. That is our reality. And the reality is clear and the state of play is unchanging. And that is not a recipe for any type of longevity. And what do we do here? What do I do here? I get lost in the next, the next name, the next iteration, the new in news dominates because you get bored. I've heard enough. I've heard enough. I cared about George Floyd. It was wrong. But I've had it with the trials too long. Just let me know when they have a verdict. We pretend that we're not just seeing the same lying and lack of leading and bleeding and death and pain. New names, new faces, new places. Same problems. You know it. I know it. I know that you know. The testing, the voting, the vaccines, the dying, the shooting, the drugs, the suicide, the teaching, the testing of education, all of it. It all hits the poor and the poor of color worst. And we know it. And we've always known it. I remember my father preaching about this when my teeth were two inches apart. There was a fat kid waiting to eat on the steps of my house while he was talking to people that he was asking to vote for him in one of the elections that he lost, like five, six in a row. Us and them, us and them. There's never a solution that doesn't begin with we. We the people, they started it. Every copy you see of the document blows those letters up. Why? Because that's all we have is the interconnectedness and the interdependence. If you give up on one another, that's it. And it doesn't matter how impressive or resonant or you feel the words to be. Because all you have is prayer. All you have is hope. That at some point, something makes some iteration or generation of us realize that the only solution is not less, but more. More people, more enabled to do more with talent to make more pie for all of us. That is the only way that this country ever approaches what she is supposed to be. And the only question for us is, what will it take to get there? Abolition. 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 That was Chris Cuomo speaking on when white kids start getting killed. That's when the change is going to come. And I like how... He made the equivalence of how there was killings going on by by cops of the black community back in the 60s. And, you know, the Black Panther Party for self-defense was formed to protect the community against that and also starting their do-for-self campaign. And that's when that we know the famous Mumford Act was uh, – instituted when they all walked into the state capitol when Ronald Reagan was governor and they walked in with all of the guns 
and now all of a sudden this one gun laws across the country changed to make it harder and harder for black people to, to obtain guns. So when white people start getting killed, when white kids start getting killed, that's when there's going to be the change, Max. I don't even know if that is actually true, to be honest with you. And, and I say this because of uh, white kids are getting killed. Uh, there was mm-hmm. Zachary Hammond here in South Carolina, in Seneca, South Carolina. He was 19 years old, white kid. He was on a date with his girlfriend, smoking a joint mm-hmm. in the car. Just a joint. It wasn't even like a blunt. It was a regular old little joint, you know. And the police came up on him and drew their weapons. And he got scared, put his car in gear to drive off, and they shot him dead right there in front of his girlfriend, traumatized her for the rest of her life, and murdered this this white kid. And we were organizing at that time, right after the Mike Brown incident, and we was like, you know, we'll help you to organize a protest about this killing of your child. And I say we loosely. I mean, the organizers mm-hmm. and activists down there. We, we, we'll help organize a protest in order to show that we care and you care and that you want justice for your child. And we did that to a, a, a degree. But normally that doesn't happen. You don't see them coming out and protest when the children get killed in mass like that. They're certainly being murdered, but they don't go out there and protest it. And that's a question all by itself. Why is that? You know? Like, right. And it's we, usually because – oh, I'm sorry, Max. No, that was it. Go ahead, brother. Oh, I was going to say usually because the the process works in their favor. And I, I would never deny that white kids are getting killed. But I think Chris Cuomo's point was is at the rate that black children are being killed, if the bodies were <laughs> piling up like that. Because I remember a few years ago uh, there was this old white couple and they were talking about their son being murdered by police officers and the mother is being interviewed and she said, you know, I've always been a cop supporter, so when I heard that my son, she said, I thought my son must have done something horribly wrong. Like her natural inclination was to be on the side of the police for killing her own son. And it wasn't until she saw the body camera footage that she realized that her son was unjustifiably murdered. You know, we do see some uh, white families that come out, usually it's on the one side of the parents family if there's a mixed uh marriage so you mm-hmm. know you'll see them i like uh what's the brother that just was shot um which one thought it was a taser or that they just buried him the other day oh there's, dante right yeah dante right you know i believe his mother is caucasian which is mm-hmm. it doesn't matter but normally you don't see them come out organize protests and you have to right. go with what you just said for them this is Mr. Friendly. This is family and neighbors. Right. And it's an right. honor and a prestige. And, you know, they're not there to hurt you. They're there to protect you, to make sure you're okay. But that's not how it is in black communities. There has never. Absolutely. From 819, April 25th, 2021, back to the creation of the first police force, there has never been a time when the police were the black, were black people's friends. <laughs> and we challenged someone to come forward with evidence of the, to the contrary. We've been asking for it for a long time. And also, uh, Max, uh, gee, I had a thought. It just escaped me. Uh, we had a caller here on this show. Well, it, it called in on another show, and we played the audio from that, where the woman was talking about her son who had been murdered in prison. 
And she said, right. I didn't know it was slavery until they murdered my son. Sandy. Until the prison guards murdered her son. Sandy Ray, I think it is. I think yeah. that's her name. Right. Yeah, so yeah so it'll be monumental know. change. They won't be talking about, oh, my child should have complied. Or well, uh, all the other excuses that they come up with. What Cuomo is talking about would be viewed very much by the whole world as a genocide. Because mathematically, you have to take some things into consideration. Uh, mm-hmm. we, black men only make up about 6% of the national population, right? Uh, mm-hmm. There's 23 million men and boys and babies. There's 144 million white men, boys and babies. You, you, there's mm-hmm. a huge difference. So if it were to right. be applied equally in the, the way that we're being killed, you would be talking about the hundreds of thousands of people now that would be killed. It would, never reach, it would never reach that. Right, it would we, never reach that. Yeah, it would never reach that. I don't, even think, it, I don't that. even think it would reach 100. Comparatively speaking, we've reached that, and there's no apathy for I mean, There's no, no sympathy for us. There's no concern, no care, not enough. Yeah. It's, it's almost always as if the we're victim's fault. Uh, yeah. Here's a statistic that will screw your whole head up, right? The number six leading cause of death for black men is murder by police. Number six, one in 1,000. Number six. Be, yeah, number six. One in 1,000 could be expected to be, be killed by police. That's how wow. often it happens. One in so, six? One in six. And, and 16%. Right. Every time I walk out the door, I have a 16% chance of, of getting being killed, killed by, by police. Mm-hmm. The sixth mm-hmm. leading cause of death, according to the data that they present. So, yeah, uh, these are the tr- traumatic senses that we have to live and breathe under every single day. Like you said, you now have this in your mind. That is a form of trauma. Every time you walk out, you're like, I've already had it in my mind for so long, I know. Right. You know. It makes me to a point where sometimes I'm even afraid to go outside. I don't even want to interact because might, it might be my last day on earth just because a cop rolled up to me for any reason. Immediately, right. there's this percentage chance that you might die. And you wonder why people are afraid, why they drive off, why a soldier, a soldier decides right. that his life is in such jeopardy, he needs to drive to a well-lit place. So in case anything goes wrong, Nobody trusts you. Your track record sucks. You've been killing us over and over and over again. And you can't reform what you're doing. You could be officer friendly all day long. And, you know, you could love your, your neighbor, give to the hungry, feed the poor, hug your wife, mm-hmm. raise your kids and grandkids. You could be the best person on earth. Your grandbaby could be like, my grandpa is the best person on earth. And everybody believe it. But all you need to do is catch one slave, and you're a fucking catch slave catcher. Just one. Right. Right. And, and you can't erase that with all the other good deeds. So if there's a million cops, and you have at least maybe two or three, uh, say three wrongful arrests in your career, that's three million people. <laughs> right. It come from somewhere, and bias makes it come from primarily black, brown, and native communities. So we're in the white privilege realm now with Chris Cuomo. <laughs> you know, that's what he's yeah. really pointing out. Yeah, that took it to another white, level. Yeah, it's the white privilege realm. You can, you can walk the street safely knowing that if a cop shows up, he's there to help you. 
And if we see him show up, we're like, he might kill us. Right. And, uh, it's a whole different perspective. Uh, we got some poetry on that, as a matter of fact, with uh, Jenny Ryan. You want to try to put that in there? Sure. So we got a, another clip. We bring it together, as always, you know, poetry and music. And this month is Poetry Month, so I've been using a lot of poetry. Uh, and with the real-life incidents, so that the story is being told from both angles. And uh, if you don't have no music and no poetry, you ain't got no revolution. So <laughs> we make sure we got the music and poetry. I got Jenna Ryan. Uh, you remember her from the January 6th event where uh, mm-hmm. this sedition occurred, uh, saying that white people don't belong in jail. And then you have the poem White Privilege by Kyla Jenny Lacey. And we're going to go ahead and listen to that. If you have a question or comment, remember, press 1. The phone number is 515-605-9814. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. Down to war? Guess what? I'm going to be there. Meet Jenna Ryan. She is the 50-year-old Texas real estate agent who flew to the Capitol riot on a private jet. They go down and storm the Capitol. They're down there right now, and that's why we came. The evidence of her criminal intent seems clear. We're all going to be up here, and we're going to be breaking those windows. Just outside the Capitol? Go in here! Life or death, it doesn't matter. Here we go. Ryan has been charged with four felonies, but she recently insisted on social media, quote, definitely not going to jail. Sorry, I have blonde hair, white skin, a great job, and a great future, and I'm not going to jail. You see, in Jenna Ryan's world, jail is for black people. Jail is for people who knock on doors while black. Are you serious? No, you are not. Represent. That's right. An elected African-American lawmaker in Georgia who knocks on the governor's door gets arrested immediately. Something that our governor is doing? You know who did not get arrested immediately? These violent white insurrectionists. When you attack police, this is white privilege. When you are peaceful but black, this is often the reality. White privilege, though, goes even further. Hello, everybody. I'm David Schuster, and thanks for joining us. You see, it's not just ignorant insurrectionists who believe they deserve special treatment. Recently, Tennessee Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn was in a car speeding away from the U.S. Capitol. Capitol Police pulled the vehicle over. Blackburn then stepped out on her own, approached the police, announced she was a senator, showed her pen, and said she was trying to catch a flight. The police let her go with no warning to her or her driver. The police didn't even file a report. Would any African-American, even a black member of Congress, get that same treatment? Most white people grow up thinking police officers are a source of safety. Too many black and brown people are not safe with the police, not even if you're a child, as Tamir Rice taught us. Not if you're seeking medical help, as Jonathan Farrell taught us. Not if your back is turned, as Walter Scott taught us. Not if you tell police you can't breathe, as Eric Garner taught us. Not if you have your hands up, as Michael Brown taught us. Not if you are safe in custody, as Freddie Gray taught us. Just five years ago, the data shows that more unarmed black people were killed by police and were lynched in any year since 1923. And by the way, white privilege, of course, is not just about interactions with police. How about educational opportunities? Concentrated poverty directly correlates with lower quality public schools. Studies have found that if you are black and poor, you are 19 times more likely to live in concentrated poverty than if you're poor and white. How about our media? Google Beauty and Face 
This is what shows up on my screen. There is one person of color out of 16. Even if our media is not intentionally biased, it covers a biased country. For example, most of our leaders describe the epidemic of heroin used overwhelmingly by white people as a health problem. When black people use drugs, we're told it's a crime problem. You get the point. Our society and our institutions are inherently racist. And Jenna Ryan, that alleged insurrectionist from Texas, lives and breathes white privilege. Will she really avoid jail because she's white and blonde? We will eventually find out. But it's not a stretch to imagine that if she was black and had been part of an African-American mob that tried to storm the Capitol, she wouldn't have lived past that day to begin with. And we all know it. And we all know we it. learned your French. We learned your English, your Spanish, your Dutch, your Portuguese, your German. You learned our nothing. You called us stupid. That's white privilege. And I'm sure it probably hurts for you to hear those two words, kind of like gunshots and explosions from those commissioned to protect you whisking past your ears. What is white privilege? It is the only five decades of legal acknowledgement expected to correct 400 years of white transgression. It is crack versus cocaine. Blacks receiving almost 20% longer sentences for the same exact offenses alike, for instance. A black man without a record is less likely to get a job than a white felon. Well, maybe it's because we're lazy and we don't work hard enough. <laughs> what the fuck? 400 years in the same field literally is an incredible resume builder. It is Katrina answering the government's prayers of eugenics, Dick Cheney going fishing the next day, Condoleezza on a shopping spree, Bush in San Diego, but Kanye is the one you call crazy because like it only took the USA two days to get aid to Asia, but five for FEMA to get to Canal Street and Esplanade. It is the one black kid who beat the shit out of the odds, but only thanks to Sandra Bullock, Michelle Pfeiffer, and the white shadow, so now we all can make it. It is the only time thousands of white people are cheering for the black kid to win is in a stadium. It is you looking at me crazy if I told you to go back to Europe even though we didn't have a say and your great-grandparents came here voluntarily. It is you. All of a sudden having a problem with immigration like this isn't even your nation. How the hell do you discover some shit that wasn't even missing to begin with? You Columbus, our tradition. Had white girls twerking in high definition with multicolored hair and purple nails, but it was ghetto when we did it. Or am I making you uncomfortable? Try a cramp slave ship. Oh, wait, slavery is over now. It's just called the prison system. Because, like, you're not racist because you don't use the N-word, but y'all use niggas every day. What is white privilege? It is the acceptance of bombs over Baghdad, but not over Boston. It is European history being taught as a major and African as an elective. It is learning about my people only 28 days. Like, I'm not black every fucking second as every white boy. Who wants to fuck my brains out, not because I'm pretty, but because I'm pretty for a black girl. It's people thinking that Africa is one nation. It is the waving of the Confederate flag like you didn't lose the battle and then telling us to get over slavery. It's people saying that black people destroyed neighborhoods, but forgetting that white people have destroyed continents. It's every time I bring up my plight, some white man has to tell me that I'm crazy, but is kind enough to praise my English or say that we are all given the same opportunities, even though he has a family history of wealth. And I don't even know my family history at all. It is the justification of police brutality like what did that person do well I'm sure it doesn't hurt as much when the victim doesn't look like you it's people thinking that affirmative action is an unfair advantage instead of keeping the qualified from being unfairly disadvantaged or throwing out a qualified applicant because their name sounded too African-American it is Newports imported into black communities but black boys exported for weed it is big plastic asses as a cold fat when we naturally have them it is an Australian woman whose new classic of rap music it is everyone who hears this poem dismisses all this truth I just fit as reverse racism. That is white privilege. Abolition.
Wow, Max. Wow. So that was Jenna Ryan. We heard uh, the section about Jenna Ryan, white people don't belong in prison, followed by white privilege. That was Kyle Janae Lacey. That poem. Man, she killed it. And she broke it down, just what they were just talking about. You know, because that's that's the other root of the problem, this white privilege. And we're not saying go murder more of your people. We're not saying go put more of your people in prison. We're saying give us the same damn leniency you get, <laughs> you know? Right. Don't, why are you targeting us? Why are you over-policing our communities? Why is it like an occupied army who hates us? They don't even live in the community. I was watching another film recently where they was talking about one of the brothers that's part of the ASNN, as a matter of fact, Yusuf uh, Quadir. He, he was explaining how in his city, 95% of the police come from another county. Only 5% right. of the police live in that county, meaning that the county he lives in is paying somebody else to come in right. and police them who don't know them, don't care about them, have no stake in it. They're taking their taxes and spending it elsewhere. They're taking their money spending it elsewhere. And that's how it is for most of us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I, just to talk about this white hey, we got a hand a up, times, by the way. Yes. Okay. Just, just a brief comment. So when we hear right. white privilege, a lot of times when people hear white privilege, especially when it's presented to white people and they want to do their pushback, you know, their logical fallacy is they're thinking when they hear white privilege that it means that they grew up with a silver spoon in their mouth like some mansion and riding around in limos. No, white privilege is just something simple. The privilege of being able to go about your way and someone not questioning why you're there. You know, where, as, the, as it goes, how does it feel to be a problem, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, they can go into a building and no one's going to try to block the door asking them if they live there. That's white privilege. It's, you know, where you can be uh, approached by police officers and treated like a human being. That's white privilege. Or you can go in front of a judge and you and i mean we see some heinous crimes and people go before you know we've seen whites go before judges and they get probation or they pay a fine that's the privilege that's being spoken of privilege doesn't mean affluence but it means the privilege of because of who you are and your ba- and and the color of your skin you get leniencies and privileges that others don't so with that, Max, I'll say uh, caller uh, three two five one. You are now live on Abolition Today with Max Parthas, Max Parthas, and Yusuf Hassan. Welcome to the show. Three two five one. You're on the line. You might be muted. All right, caller. Well, sorry, can you hear me? Yes. yes. Sorry, yeah, my mic was muted. Sorry about that. Hey, guys, it's Sean. How are you doing? Hey, Sean. Welcome to the program, as always, brother. I don't know if I want to follow that white privilege. That was really, really, that was really, really important. Um, but my comment was um with the the murders this past week of um of black children. I was wondering, mm-hmm. and looking at the slavery, I was wondering 
Um, one of the things I don't think is linked, as I think should be linked, is um, the, the UN rights from the Convention of the Child, um, which is way back in 1989. Um, the only, I think the only nation in the world that hasn't ratified, sorry, it's ratified but has not um, implemented it is the United States and how that is related to history and ongoing practice of slavery. I was wondering yeah, they, what your thoughts on that might be. I've noticed that the U.S. has, uh, particularly of late with the Trump administration, tried to back away from uh, putting pen to paper in regards to any kind of human rights conditions where they could be held accountable by a global body. Uh, it's not mm-hmm. something they seem to be interested in at all. They want to, like mm-hmm. we do with our police force, to police themselves. They want to hold themselves accountable uh, and not have mm-hmm. anybody tell them where they're wrong, whether it be through child slavery, child labor, or prison labor. Uh, we have mm-hmm. literally seen them just in the past recent days come out and decry China's use of prison labor and mm-hmm. how uh, they treat their citizens over there. But who the hell are you to talk? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you're, You've got the prison capital of the world. China doesn't. You have more mm-hmm. people in, per capita in prison than China does, and you have more of them working than China does. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. China is not doing the uh, warehousing bodies for profit aspect yet, but America is on a very large level. So yeah, that's my thoughts on it. I don't think they want anybody to be able to hold them accountable for anything. Mm-hmm. I was reading, um, I think it was in a, a prison abolitionist book, but um, how they did make the point of how um, children were also in the the fields and you know involved with slavery, so kind of making the connection between you know black children being enslaved and then in fields and being murdered in the streets. People don't seem to make, or maybe maybe people. I know maybe it's the problem, but um, don't make the connection, you know, about about how that's historically a, a continuum, you know, of not caring whether you know um, they're enslaved or killed, just not caring either way. Mm-hmm. You know, if that yes. makes any sense at all. Nearly seventy years after the Thirteenth Amendment was ratified. The cave-in occurred in Alabama, 1928, I believe it was. It killed 145 men, women, and children. They mm-hmm. had children working in the mines, black children who they picked up on these vagrancy laws or troubled youth mm-hmm. laws or whatever the hell they had to make up at the time. But that was mm-hmm. the, the 20th century that that occurred. It's 70 mm-hmm. years, nearly 70 years after the 13th Amendment. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah man, I think um, um, some more like um, made the connections with Africa. I think there are children in mines doing that in Africa now, whereas right. you know probably not in the United States anymore. So not to, to make that, your but, cell phones. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, well, so. we we have uh, come to the end of this segment where well, we've got to get this final part in. So we're going to get to the part where we thank our sponsors and play our final clip for the night. I appreciate you always for calling in and sharing your comments, uh, Brother Sean. Absolutely. We tried to wrap it up today real nice. Uh, We showed you the roots and the fruits, how far back they go. We showed you that the people knew what was going on, what the plan was, and who it was aimed at. And then we also showed you how white privilege allows that net to let certain people slip through while (laughs) catching others because it wasn't made for them. 
Uh, we broke that down pretty clearly with the clips and the poetry and the conversation. Uh, and we got something, it's a little long, but it's worth listening to uh, at the end for sure. And it's more contemporary than we usually play uh, with Brother Charles W. Chestnut uh, tonight. He'll be talking about the Negro problem. And uh, Yusuf, I just want to throw this out there, man. I mentioned to you mm-hmm. earlier, uh, I've been doing a lot of study, you know, trying to get these ideas and understandings better so that I could present them here tonight and, and with the production that we were doing. And some of the studying I was doing was on Booker T. Washington and uh, Du Bois, as well as Charles mm-hmm. Chestnut, listening to them. And I tell you, man, Booker T. does not impress me, man. He makes me think like, wow, that was the Candace Owens of his time, basically, you know? <laughs> and, and, and Du Bois wasn't too far behind him, in my opinion, with that talented mm-hmm. tenth garbage, you know, you know what I'm saying? Right. Like, really, right. we need Black to justify Blake. our existence to people? That's what you're telling us? So that that bothered me about them got my head all messed up. But tonight's clip, uh, I believe he's addressing directly uh, Booker T. Washington. So make sure you listen to that part. It's pretty wild. All right, Yusuf. Yeah, I can't wait to hear it because you know I don't even. Although you sent me the clip, that clip for the bridging the gap, but I always like to listen to that one live. I like to uh, mention our sponsors and partners: Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, I Am We Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network. Same Urge, Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, and the Black Talk Radio Network. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube uh, channel. It's youtube.com forward slash abolition today. For all the news, information, and music you hear on this program, Abolition Today is also available on all major podcast platforms and the simulcast on the Black Talk Radio Network. And also remember to join the movement at AbolishSlavery.us to become part of the solution. We'll be back on May 2nd with another master class, and that's inshallah, God willing, on slavery abolition. Don't forget forget to tune into uh, or tune into our archives because as people are becoming more and more uh, aware of abolition today, you know they, they're catching like this season. But they really need to start from episode one, even if they go back to our test premiere, which was on March 12th, but our premiere episode was on March 15th. And so I encourage everyone to go back. Yes, 2020. Go back, listen to them, because it has been a master class the entire way. Uh, I was telling someone earlier uh, this evening that you and I should be college professors (laughs) because of all of the information that we lay out on the program. Hey, anybody so, want to give us an honorary doctorate, we are accepting, you know. <laughs> yeah, that, that has a nice no, ring to it, Dr. No, Max Parthas. There's, yeah, there's no uh, universities that teach this where you can get a doctorate in it. Uh, this is something that we had to yet. learn like our ancestors learned. Yes, no university yet. We're working on yet. it. No doubt. Yeah, we're working on it. Well, so that brings us to the Let me just say thank you. Thank you to our two, to people listening tonight. Appreciate you as always, uh, Yusuf. And we're going to do that mural very likely in the beginning of May. Uh, the mural on the Park of the Abolitionist Center being painted <sighs> by Thomas Washington. If you'd like to help us with that, our cash app is Abolition CTR with a capital A and a capital C. Abolition CTR. And our PayPal is abolitionistcenter at gmail.com. Um, 
Market for Abolitionist Mural. And uh, we'll announce all of our donors when we do it. Thank you. Yeah, that's great news, Max. So as Max mentioned, our Bridging the Gap is entitled The Negro Problem. It's an excerpt from the Disenfranchisement of the Negro by Charles W. Chestnut. And it's going to be followed by MERS in Ninth Wonder, The Problem Is. So until next week, or we thank you for listening to Abolition Today. We thank all of our – we thank uh, Sean for calling in. We thank all of those who tuned in, whether calling online or listening uh, through their phones. Uh, until next week, think about Abolition Today. Peace and blessings be upon you all. Abolition, Abolition. Today. Reporting Abolition. by James Abolition. K. White. Abolition. The Negro Problem. Section 3, The Disfranchisement of the Negro by Charles W. Chestnut. Contempt for law is death to a republic, and this one has developed alarming symptoms of the disease. And now, having thus robbed the Negro of every political and civil right, the white South, in palliation of its course, makes a great show of magnanimity in leaving him as the sole remnant of what he acquired through the Civil War a very inadequate public school education which, by the present program, is to be directed mainly towards making him a better agricultural laborer. Even this is put forward as a favor, although the Negro's property is taxed to pay for it, and his labor as well. For it is a well-settled principle of political economy that land and machinery of themselves produce nothing, and that labor indirectly pays its fair proportion of the tax upon the public's wealth. The white South seems to stand to the Negro at present as one who, having been reluctantly compelled to release another from bondage, sees him stumbling forward and upward, neglected by his friends, and scarcely yet conscious of his own strength, seizes him, binds him, and having bereft him of speech, of sight, and of manhood, yokes him with the mule, and exclaims, with a show of virtue which ought to deceive no one, Behold how good a friend I am of yours. Have I not left you a stomach and a pair of arms? And will I not generously permit you to work for me with the one, that you may thereby gain enough to fill the other? A brain you do not need. We will relieve you of any responsibility that might seem to demand such an organ. The argument of peace-loving northern white men and Negro opportunists that the political power of the Negro having long ago been suppressed by unlawful means, his right to vote as a mere paper right, of no real value, and therefore to be lightly yielded for the sake of a hypothetical harmony, is fatally short-sighted. It is precisely the attitude and essentially the argument which would have surrendered to the South in the 60s, and would have left this country to rot in slavery for another generation. White men do not thus argue concerning their own rights. They know too well the value of ideals. Southern white men see too clearly the latent power of these unexercised rights. If the political power of the Negro was a nullity because of his ignorance and lack of leadership, why were they not content to leave it so, with the pleasing assurance that if it ever became effective, it would be because the Negroes had grown fit for its exercise. On the contrary, they have not rested until the possibility of its revival was apparently headed off by new state constitutions, nor are they satisfied with this. There is no doubt that an effort will be made to secure the repeal of the 15th Amendment, 
and thus forestall the development of the wealthy and educated Negro, whom the South seems to anticipate as a greater menace than the ignorant ex-slave. However improbable this repeal may seem, it is not a subject to be lightly dismissed, for it is within the power of the white people of the nation to do whatever they wish in the premises. They did it once, they can do it again. The Negro and his friends should see to it that the white majority shall never wish to do anything to his hurt. There still stands before the Negro-hating whites of the South the specter of a Supreme Court which will interpret the Constitution to mean what it says, and what those who enacted it meant, and what the nation, which ratified it, understood, and which will find power in a nation which goes beyond seas to administer the affairs of distant peoples, to enforce its own fundamental laws. The specter, too, of an aroused public opinion which will compel Congress and the courts to preserve the liberties of the Republic, which are the liberties of the people. To willfully neglect the suffrage, to hold it lightly, is to tamper with a sacred right. To yield it for anything else whatever is simply suicidal. Dropping the element of race, disfranchisement is no more than to say to the poor and poorly taught, that they must relinquish the right to defend themselves against oppression until they shall have become rich and learned in competition with those already thus favored and possessing the ballot in addition. This is not the philosophy of history. The growth of liberty has been the constant struggle of the poor against the privileged classes, and the goal of that struggle has ever been the equality of all men before the law. The Negro who would yield this right deserves to be a slave. He has the servile spirit. The rich and the educated can, by virtue of their influence, command many votes, can find other means of protection. The poor man has but one. He should guard it as a sacred treasure. Long ago, by fair treatment, the white leaders of the South might have bound the Negro to themselves with hoops of steel. They have not chosen to take this course, but by assuming from the beginning an attitude hostile to his rights, have never gained his confidence, and now seek by foul means to destroy where they have never sought by fair means to control. I have spoken of the effect of disfranchisement upon the colored race. It is to the race as a whole that the argument of the problem is generally directed. But the unit of society in a republic is the individual, and not the race. The failure to recognize this fact being the fundamental error which has beclouded the whole discussion. The effect of disfranchisement upon the individual is scarcely less disastrous. I do not speak of the moral effect of injustice upon those who suffer from it. I refer, rather, to the practical consequences which may be appreciated by any mind. No country is free in which the way upward is not open for every man to try, and for every properly qualified man to attain whatever of good the community life may offer. Such a condition does not exist at the South, even in theory, for any man of color. In no career can such a man compete with white men upon equal terms. He must not only meet the prejudice of the individual, not only the united prejudice of the white community, but lest someone should wish to treat him fairly, he is met at every turn with some legal prohibition which says, Thou shalt not, or thus far shalt thou go, and no farther. But the Negro race is viable. It adapts itself readily to circumstances. 
and being thus adaptable, there is always the temptation to crook the pregnant hinges of the knee, where thrift may follow fawning. He who can most skillfully balance himself upon the advancing or receding wave of white opinion concerning his race is surest of such measure of prosperity as is permitted to men of dark skins. There are Negro teachers in the South. The privilege of teaching in their own schools is the one respectable branch of the public service still left open to them, who, for a grudging appropriation from a Southern legislature, will decry their own race, approve their own degradation, and laud their oppressors. Deprived of the right to vote, and therefore of any power to demand what is their due, they feel impelled to buy the tolerance of the whites at any sacrifice. If to live is the first duty of man, as perhaps it is the first instinct, then those who thus stoop to conquer may be right. But is it needful to stoop so low? And if so, where lies the ultimate responsibility for this abasement? Tell me why that they blame the lie. 
lines and raps But what about the medium They disguise the net How we got access to ammo when any side the cat But we can't get a decent scoop for us to knowledge at It's called the blood malice They know they turned us into crime addicts On the block chasing superficial status Not do the mathematics How many of us die in war on the street or for all who seek and score The same cops we pay to protect the service And the country turns us back even though you fought for written service When it comes to my life it's never one problem You never know about it till you watch the truth that I'm in Abolition. 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 Abolition.